the next step on the transcendental dependent arising is called knowledge and vision of things as they really are. In Pali, that's Jata Bhutanyana Dasana. The vision is the experience and the knowledge is the understanding of it. In other words, the understood experience of things as they really are. Which, of course, means, in other words, insight. And it comes in this dependent arising as the next step after the meditative absorptions. So in practice that means that if one does the meditative absorptions, that one does those first in each session and uses the strength and calm of the mind which has arisen to see things as they really are. If one doesn't do the meditative absorptions, then one uses one's meditation practice in order to see things as they really are. To see things as they really are, which means insight, means in the Buddhist terminology to understand and experience the three characteristics, the three characteristics of all that exists. Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and coalescence. Impermanence is covered over by continuity because the breath keeps on arising, we keep forgetting that each breath is already finished, that this is a totally impermanent action. Dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, is covered over by change, by movement. Either we run away from it, go somewhere else, distract ourselves, move our body, whatever it may be. So dukkha is covered over by that, primarily because we don't like it. And anatta, corelessness, substancelessness, is covered over by compactness, solidity. We have to, in order to see things as they really are, start to break down those obstacles. We have to start breaking down our concept that shows us continuity as permanence and compactness and solidity as self or substance. The first step on this inside path is to delineate mind and matter, which means to get the experience 
that this is not one compact whole, but that this is mind and matter, that this is our mind and body, either way. In the meditative practice, the breath is matter, and the awareness of the breath is mind. So when we sit there watching the breath and we don't get concentrated enough to have serenity and calm, instead of discursive thinking, it is far more um, useful and profitable to realize these two aspects and realize them solidly which breaks up the first of the compactness and solidity of this person. It only breaks it up in a minor way, but we've got to start somewhere. Mind and matter are the two aspects that exist everywhere. It may not be the kind of mind that we know ourselves to have, but even a tree or any other natural phenomena has a craving for existence. Otherwise, it can't survive. So we can eventually, when we become imbued enough with the understanding of mind and matter in ourselves, also see it in all that is around us. It is internal and external. It always starts internally. We have to start with ourselves. The whole of the universe, O oh monks, lies in this fathom long body and mind. So we start here with the meditation subject and extend that understanding from the meditation subject to all that we are. We are either mind or matter. And the two are interdependent, but they are not identical. And unless we have a good grasp of this very first and basic understanding of ourselves, we do not have the ability to go further into insight will always be blocked by yes but which is the expression of skeptical doubt every time there's skeptical doubt the sentence starts or the thought starts with yes but when we have made absolute sh absolutely sure that we understand that there are two aspects of us and that mind is the one that is in charge. Then we have understood this very first step into insight. Because we can see that mind is the one that orders the body around. And even the breath, which is essential to life, can be ordered around by the mind. 
we can tell it to stop a moment, we can tell it to go deep, to be shallow, quick, slow, even that. Although it is an autonomous action of the body, it can still be ordered around by the mind. So we have an insight into that aspect of ourselves and we can extend it to everything around us. And when we have understood that, the next insight that arises is that this mind and this matter which we are is not one solid unit but consists of heaps or movements that each one, each thought is not one solid thought but a movement of thought, a movement in the mind and matter, the body, we can actually feel with some mindfulness that there is movement. And this extends or starts out with the meditation subject. As we watch the breath intently and become concentrated enough to really be with that breath, we can notice that it has um, movement in it. It's not one solid thing. At least it has beginning, middle and end. But it has constant movement in it. And as we become aware of the mind watching this breath, we can also become aware of the movement in the mind. As we realize these heaps that are uh, actually happening within us, we get a further understanding of the nature of this person that has had this compact appearance to us. The solidity and compactness always overrides the corelessness and as it overrides it, it is so extremely difficult to get an insight into what it means, no self. The word it's itself is difficult. Corelessness, substancelessness is possibly easier to handle. Void is even more difficult. So when we get an understanding of the fact that there is movement and not solidity, that this what appears so solid is actually like the dust in the air that we can see when the sunlight hits it. The same applies to this body. When we can experience that and understand that for what it is, then we gain a foothold in insight. It has to come about through the meditative practice. It won't come about by uh, just knowing about it. It won't come about by pondering over it. It has to be an experience. But when it is an experience, it also has to be an understood experience. One has to know exactly what one is experiencing. Without knowing that, 
the whole experience is in vain. So the meditative practice, watching the breath or whatever they said one is watching, brings about enough concentration, at least enough momentary concentration, which is necessary for insight. Momentary concentration means that we are momentarily absolutely fixed on the subject. Although the concentration then wavers again, that moment is usually enough to gain some insight. It is certainly not enough to gain calm, but it is enough to gain insight. And the momentary concentration can then also extend into neighborhood concentration, where the mind is also fixed on the subject, although Wispy's thoughts do arise, but they're not disturbing. And the watchfulness that we are aware of is that which we understand to be movement and the breath we understand to be movement in itself. The same goes for feeling. If we're watching feeling, that in itself is also not compact and solid. In its, it also has constant movement in it. It has constant coming and going. If we have an understanding of these two aspects, not intellectually, but experientially, we will see everything in a different light. We no longer see everything so solidly, especially ourselves, but we get an, a feeling for the fact that this is a totally impermanent phenomena. And we lose some of our attachment to this phenomena. Our attachment to this phenomena is based on the compactness, the solidity of it, and the continuity of it. And when we see that that is not so in our meditative experience, then we have the way open to gain a true insight. The next step on this insight path to see things as they really are is to understand causes and conditions. To understand that everything has a cause Everything that we know has a condition and is a result thereof. <coughs> Which means that we realize that body, matter, all matter, is consisting of elements. Now we have already spoken about the four primary elements. And when we consider this fact, in our meditation, we can feel the temperature, we can feel the wind of the breath, we can feel the water element in sweat or saliva, 
and we certainly can feel the earth element in the solid aspect of the body. When we feel those and we know them to be so, we realize that matter has as a condition those elements. It is not self-sustaining. It is not something that is self-sustaining or unconditioned. It has a condition and having a condition it is dependent and being dependent it will constantly have dukkha because it has no none of its own way of looking after it because the elements are constantly changing in their consistency and therefore this matter, this body, being dependent upon it, changes also in its consistency and therefore has, most of the time, some discomfort. Now that can be experienced. It's no use thinking about it. It must be experienced first. And as it experienced, then the thought process arises understanding it. The same goes for mind. Mind is also a condition. When it arises as a thought process, it arises because it has had contact. It has had contact through the senses, any sort of contact through the senses, which makes feeling perception and then thought arise. So the condition is the contact through the sense base, which is eye, ear and so forth, or body, with the sense object which brings about the sense perception, the sense consciousness, the seeing or hearing of any of them and then with that comes the feeling, the perceiving which is the explaining and the thought process which is the reaction to it which makes karma. So when we watch this happening in the mind, in the meditative state we will see this as a reality and not just as a um, description. It's not only a description, it is a description of a reality. We can see, as I've mentioned before, but I will say it again, when there is a painful feeling and the mind reacts to it and wants to get rid of it, it is due to the sense contact which makes a feeling arise which explains it as pain the mind explaining it as pain and then reacting to it disliking it wanting to get away from it and this is the way it works with all mind states with mind states include also thinking thinking produces feeling perception and another reaction now this if we watch, for instance, the unpleasant feeling in our sitting position comes quite clear. 
and we can then see it in all our mind states that there is a cause for it there's an underlying condition that it isn't self-sustaining and seeing this in mind and matter that neither one are self-sustaining that neither one are independent that they're all dependent on the conditions gives rise to the understanding that there isn't a person in charge of this if there were a person in charge of it surely that person would have enough sense to only think happy thoughts and have only pleasant feelings but seeing there isn't a person in charge there's nothing we can do about it but this has to come as an experience in the meditative process and just watching unpleasant feelings or even pleasant feelings brings that about and if the mind has become concentrated enough it can see that quite clearly the um, attention on the breath itself as the breath moves back and forth brings with it a feeling as there is it's a neutral feeling but feeling is of three kinds so when this neutral feeling has arisen then there's a perception of it an explaining of it and then the mind reacts to it possibly with mindfulness if it is attentive to what it's supposed to be doing but there's always a condition or a cause for the mind to react and knowing this quite clearly we can use this under all circumstances not just in the meditation we can use that knowing and that experiencing at other times which means that we no longer have to believe this mind what it uh, throws up but we realize that what it throws up is due to a condition to a trigger and that we can turn the mind in a different direction we don't have to let it run if it's unwholesome we do no longer believe that it is my mind we no longer believe that this what it's throwing up is actually so we know that it is nothing but due to a cause that it has arisen because of a condition now these um, insights which we deliberately put our mind on make it then possible for the mind to stay with this is the mind having realized these things for itself after having deliberately checked it out and to see whether it is correct it will then be able to stay with that far better and far longer than ever before out of meditation it becomes sort of a natural progression that the mind knows that this is happening cause and condition for mind and matter also brings the understanding that there is a cause and a condition for our birth which is craving and ignorance ignorance meaning ignoring the uh, absolute truth and craving to be here and that this condition brings about defilements 
which result in unskillful actions, sometimes also, of course, in skillful actions when it is done without defilement, but in any case, actions which are based on ego and therefore have resultants. These causes and conditions which we see in mind and matter need to be extended further into our karmic resultants. Our karmic resultants are not, no accidents. They are not something that fate is doing to us. They are nothing but cause and condition. The Buddhist teaching is sometimes called the teaching of cause and result. And it is always um, meant to be a teaching of analysis because the only way we will ever get into the uh, understanding of, this, of these heaps which make up this phenomena is if we analyze. So it isn't a matter of just logical conclusion, but it's certainly not a matter of not logical conclusion. It is a matter of using the inner vision, that's why it's called knowledge and vision, the inner vision to realize what is happening. So it is the vision, the experience, together with the logical conclusion. Having um, been able to see these three first steps, mind and matter as two, all as heaps and not as solid, all as movement and not as one great big thing, and then causes and conditions for mind and matter and karmic resultants, we come to the most significant aspect of insight when we actually examine the arising and ceasing, which is the feature of impermanence. That which has arisen due to a cause and a condition must cease because all causes and conditions also cease. So when we realize that the breath that has come in has already ceased and another one has arisen to go out and that one has ceased, then we get an inkling of arising and ceasing. And these aspects of the meditation practice are to be used rather than allowing the mind to think about totally non-essential aspects of past or future. Every time the mind runs away and wants to think, bring it back to one of these aspects with which we gain insight. The arising and ceasing of the breath is easy to see and easy to understand. The arising and ceasing of the mind that watches the breath is just, is just as apparent if we become aware of the fact that there is movement, all movement has arising and ceasing in it. All movement also has irritation in it. And so we can see the dukkha in the whole thing. But the dukkha of the breath is not so apparent because we want to live and without breath we can't live. But in actual fact, Arising and ceasing, the movement, 
of everything that exists, constant movement is constant irritation. And constant irritation is the cause of dukkha. And there's no reason at all to be surprised that we have dukkha and that the world is full of dukkha because it can't be anything else within impermanence. Dukkha is already embedded in it. So we watch the arising and ceasing of breath and we watch the arising and ceasing of mind as it watches the breath. And from that, we can learn to watch the arising and ceasing in all that happens to us. Whether it is an emotion, whether it is a, a sensation, whether it is a thought, whether it is a reaction, whether it is a physical movement. There is no physical movement without arising and ceasing. So we become quite interested at that stage in our physical movements because they tell the story so eloquently. We cannot walk a single step without arising and ceasing. We cannot lift an arm without arising and ceasing. We can't get dressed without it. So this is an aspect which is very easy to see because it's uh, obvious to us. And it's very interesting at that time to us because we can see the proclamation of the true Dhamma in all that we are and in all that we do. And at that time, because we can see it so clearly, it is also a moment of overcoming all doubt. It is a very necessary moment because this overcoming of doubt gives new impetus, impetus to the practice. Doubt is like a break. It holds one back because one's got to um, fiddle with one's mind and worry this way or that way. When there's no doubt, there is much more strength. Energy is linked free. So the overcoming of doubt at this stage and at the same time the knowledge of comprehension. These are the two um, steps at this time which are happening. The knowledge of comprehension means that not only are we watching that the breath is so impermanent, not only are we watching that our movements are so impermanent, but we are investigating all five khandhas, the five aggregates of which we consist. And we know from this investigation that the breath which is matter, the movements which are matter, the mind which is the mental aspect, all of it is constantly arising and ceasing. Now this gives us the significant insight because we can see that in us and in others. We do not we no longer need to get angry at anybody because we know it's just one of the khandhas arising and ceasing. And uh, we no longer need to uh, passionately want anyone because we just know it's 
five khandas arising and ceasing. At this time, the five khandas are very prominent in one's uh, consciousness. And one watches them first, of course, in oneself. What one doesn't know about oneself, we will never know about anyone else. So we know about ourselves in the movement, in the breath, about the body, and also, of course, in its um, uh, decay, in its aging, in its uh, uh, changeability. And we know about our mind aspect, about our feeling aspect, and we keep on looking at that in the meditative first process, but also out of the meditation, because at that time, uh, the interest is aroused and it is possible to stay with this kind of investigation in the meditation very l for a long time without being distracted and in daily life it is also possible to stay with that kind of investigation and not be distracted from it not be caught again in the solid compact aspect of oneself and others. But to constantly investigate the five khandas, now we can see them, the, especially of course the physical khandas, in all matters around us. And we can see that too as constantly changing. A tree will grow, decay and die. Le uh, leaves will uh, grow, decay and die. And so does everything else around us. And that will be a very um, significant moment in our insight uh, progress. Because this arising and ceasing then comes to the point in the meditation where only the ceasing is seen, the dissolution. And when we see that, because the concentration has become um, more, uh, more subtle, so that it sort of bypasses the arising and actually fastens on to the dissolution, to the ceasing of the breath, the ceasing of the mind moment, and again and again sees all that around it. When that arises, the mind can become quite um, frightened. <laughs> and that is a moment when it is possible to have the experience of terror. Because nothing can be found that one can hang on to. It's all falling apart in front of one's very eyes constantly falling apart. And that concerns all the khandas in oneself and all that which exists. Now it looks so solid if we look now, but when the meditation concentration has taken hold and the insight has come to that point, it is no longer possible to deny that all that we see is really an optical illusion. If it were not constantly falling apart, it would stay like this forever. It can't. It ha all has the aspect of being 
based on a condition and a cause. And all these conditions are constantly changing. So having come to that point and realizing this in the meditation and in one's own logical conclusion, then it is not uncommon that a terror feeling arises. What am I to do? There's nothing to hang on to. I think I'm going to leave you with that till tomorrow. (laughs) 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 So that you will want to know what happens after that. (laughs) (laughs) This has been like a weak serial, hasn't it? Now you can ask some questions, but don't ask me what happens after that. I'll tell you tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Did you say that the mind can't arise without contact? So where is it when it's not being contacted? Yeah. Yeah, consciousness would have probably been a better word. Yes, yes. So so what are the characteristics of consciousness besides arising from contact? What are other what are the characteristics of consciousness? Are there ones that we can that that we can be aware of? Besides movement. Which means arising and ceasing. that we can be aware of. So those are the only two characteristics, characteristics of consciousness that arises from contact and it has movement, that's, that's all? It arises from contact and the movement that it has means that it isn't solid and that it's constantly arriving and ceasing when there has been made a contact for it to arise. Otherwise it is in the um, state of the bhavanga, which is the well, I suppose we can say subconscious. It's not quite, quite correct. But we're not aware of that. It's called the bhavanga state when the, sub, when the consciousness hasn't arisen yet. It needs contact to arise. The simile that's given is that it's like a man sleeping under a tree and, um, or sitting, yeah, sleeping under a tree and the fruit falls off the tree and hits him on the head and that's when it comes up that's when consciousness arises, contact and the and form arises from craving and ignorance or our form anyway, what about other form, what is it from? all the same from the same Uh, no, I would suggest not to think about it. I would suggest to meditate on it. Uh, to watch the breath with that in mind. But before watching the breath with that in mind, any of the aspects, we don't, don't have to use all of them, any of them. But before doing that, 
in the meditative process first get to the calm state because the mind has an entirely different ability after coming out of that if you can and then get to investigating any of that okay what else I, uh, I was intrigued when you said that um, because mind doesn't cooperate with uh, what you like to think, that means that you don't exist. One doesn't exist. Mm, not quite. Uh, it, uh, there's no owner there. There's no owner to it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it seems to me but I guess the best, admitting that the best thing would be to be labeling thoughts um, so that you just don't believe them. Mm-hmm. But maybe as a second best thing, um, could, could some contents arise out of, out of just the orneriness of seeing the orneriness of mind? Like seeing it as, some, as, as something else? You know, someone, somebody else's or, or not? <laughs> you know, you know what I'm getting at? Yes, I know what you're you know, saying. I that might be a help, but I don't quite know how to use that feeling. Yes, you know, I, I feeling. know what you're saying. Um, well, it's not somebody else's mind, that's <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, it is, let's say you can look at it and say, this is an untrained mind, and it's just doing what it wants to do. And if I had any say about this, if I really owned the thing, it wouldn't be doing this. So that might give a, a sort of an inkling of it, right? Yeah, but then that, see, with me that that comes up, but it, it just makes me um, regret a lot instead. Regret what? Just regret having an untrained mind. <laughs> 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 well, that's good. Because that's going to, going to uh, encourage you to have a trained mind. And then when you have a trained mind, then there's no question anymore that there's no owner. A trained mind knows that there's no owner. So that's good. That's an encouragement to train it, no? <laughs> Isn't that exactly opposite what the, the, uh, I don't know that that term, the writer, Frank Sinatra, the dark artist, who said, I yes. think therefore I am. It's exactly opposite of that. That's right. Yes. I was wondering that in all this, uh, your talk, the word, uh, consciousness occurs very rarely. You talk about the word mind, mm. not consciousness. Yes, well, consciousness, uh, unfortunately, in Pali, is used for so many different things that it gives rise to misunderstanding. In Pali, the word consciousness means vijnana, and it gives and it is used for so many different aspects of consciousness that we get into a bind trying to explain which one it is first of all there's sense consciousness which means the meeting of the sense base with the sense object then there's rebirth consciousness then there is awareness which is also consciousness so we are in a, it is much better for us to use the word awareness rather than consciousness, although sometimes we have to come back to consciousness, we can't find a better word. In Pali we have um, extra words which are stuck on to the word vijnana to make sure you know which one is meant. 
and it's got about six different ones. I can only think of three right now. Mm. I have a kind of feeling that they made a time of Buddha because he was uh, uh, came from the Brahminical religion. So all this was so developed. So to convince the Brahmins who were arguing with him, learned people of different in different branches. So he had to be very specific and very analytical. I think mean, this is how, to me, it's very surprising. I have read about other things, stages in India. But uh, this is my first exposure to it uh, in a detailed form. And I'm finding it very surprising that the way to going to the root of everything and then again going to the root and again going and uh, seeing all the possibilities of it and then having an answer for that. This is for me a revelation. <laughs> Well, the Buddha was a revelation to India at the time of his life. <laughs> yes. Hi, Cameron. You, you spoke the meditative practice brings enough, about enough momentary concentration for insight and also but this is not to gain, gain calm. It just occurred to me, that it's a, as you were saying, that the, I can't see how just in actual sitting that insight isn't calm. Well, it can be, but uh, the momentary concentration, which... Um, Actually, the Buddha did not speak about it, but the commentaries talk about it, and it's used widely by all meditation teachers as an aspect of um, uh, concentration, momentary concentration, is enough to have a moment. You don't lose it. Insights are not lost. But the calm can be lost. So when you have gained an insight during your meditation period, it may calm you down so that you can get to some calm state. That's possible. Sorry. So the insight gained from momentary concentration can lead to some ultimate experience because it never goes. And that you see, is it no. no, 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 no. Don't use the word ultimate experience. The word ultimate experience means nibbana. Uh -huh. The but precision. The Buddha gave a discourse once. Uh, the um, it's called the Discourse on Non-Conflict, and in it he talks about speech. It's a very interesting discourse. And one of the things he says about speech is, when talking about the Dhamma, you've got to be absolutely precise. So that's why I'm saying, mm -hmm. don't use that word, because it, uh, we use it for Nibbana. Okay. But it's an inside experience. Let's call it an inside experience. And the inside experience, isn't it, it doesn't fade? No. Is that in terms of memory? Yes, also not only in, in terms of memory, but having understood something deeply within through repetitive, uh, uh, repetitive 
putting your mind, repetitively putting your mind on it, it changes your inner being. Uh, but how does it reside? Reside? What do you mean, where it's going to reside? Well, I just don't understand, I don't understand how the calm is um, momentary and the insight is long-lasting, but yet I don't understand they're the same nature. Huh? Why well, is calm and insight of the same nature? Calm and insight being that they're, they're both not nirvana, and so yeah. they're both, and, and so they're still in, the, in the terms of the relative mind, but I don't understand what one is um, permanent and one is transitory. Okay. If you have gained an insight, for instance, how to uh, balance a bank account, you're going to lose that insight? Are you going to keep on knowing that? Or if you have uh, read, uh, let's say, you've read Shakespeare and you have actually studied Hamlet, and you really know what's in there, and uh, you are able to recite that. Unless your memory completely goes, you can do that. You've gained an insight into the whole matter. Or if you've gained an insight on how to drive a car, it's not likely that you're going to lose that insight. You know what you're doing. It's like riding a bicycle from that perspective. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, you know. But... If you have bent your mind to the point of making it pliable, malleable, expendable, and uh, uh, where it has become soft and uh, uh, where it goes into different dimension, and then you stop doing that, you lose it. Uh, so you, you lose basically. Whereas the inside, you don't lose it. It stays with you. Yeah. Well, if you start losing your memory, these insights also go. Yeah. Of course, if you don't have any memory anymore, then your mind has lost its pliability. If you lose your memory, something goes wrong, no? So if you, so it's, um, so insight is in the same way in terms of you have to continue. There has to be some malleability for there to be a recognition of the continued recognition of the insight, whereas there has to be a calm. Sorry, I didn't catch that sentence. Can you say that again? Whereas calm, you have to have a continued... Practice. Practice. Yes. But with insight, that's not necessarily the case. Once you, once insight is established, it's established. Yes. To a certain point. Why isn't the mind of insight impermanent and changing? Mm-hmm. Why isn't the mind of insight impermanent and changing also? It is, certainly. So then, but if you know that, that's an insight. <laughs> I, I guess what I don't understand is, understand is and uh, I'll just leave it at that, is how his insight is permanent, yet at the same time it, it's still conditional because it's not nirvana. Well, insight can, can lead you and can become, can come to the point where it is, where it is Nibbana. 
but these ones I've talked about are all on the way there. There's certainly none of them are Nibbana, but they're all necessary to get there. All of them are needed because this is a steady progression of insight and it can come to the point where the progression has reached its end where it is possible to be Nibbana. And when it is Nibbana, then that insight has fruited. But these are insights on the way. But once gained, having gained one of them, you're not likely to lose it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. If uh, our minds are considered to be normal, the Buddha said none of us are quite normal, but anyway, we think we are normal. And this normality is a precondition for this path. What, what does it mean to lose one's memory? Then? I don't know. I have never lost my memory. I don't know what it means to lose your memory. Yes. There are many, many ways of losing one's memory. on the tape. <laughs> I would have rather thought that um, insight results from some kind of slippage in one's conception rather than gaining the conception. A slippage? <laughs> like a, a false conception that you used to hold yes. is suddenly seen as not valid, so you drop it. Like the yes, yes. Yes. And that is insight. Yes, that is also so insight. You, you actually lose a conception. So why would that be subject to memory? That you've lost the con I don't know. How can you how can you not know something when you have no memory? I don't know what, what you do without memory. I've never had no memory. I can only speak from what I know. I have no idea what it's like to be without memory. What you lose. <laughs> one of the things that you need in, in uh, one of the five khandas is perception, and perception is based on memory. But I can't speak of something that I don't know. I don't know what, what it's like to be no memory. A normal mind has memory. 
But you see, what you're, what you're saying is that you're losing a certain concept. By losing a certain concept, you have a different concept then. Well, no. I mean, uh, no concept? That, that you lose a concept and you don't put another Well, if you lose the concept of solidity, you have the concept then, or the knowing of, or the insight of, non-solidity. Well, You've got to know that. Inside of non-solidity, the same concept of non-solidity? Yes. As long as you're losing a concept, you're putting another one in. Yes. If you're losing an experience, you've got to have a new experience. Certainly. Except hmm. Yes. But I'm sure I cannot answer what it's like to be without memory. I have no idea. And perception is based on memory. So if you perceive something, you have to have some memory. And perceiving is, in, is part of, of, of our mental process. The only thing that we are looking at wrongly is not that this is this way and this is that way, we're looking at it wrongly that this mental process which we know is owned by somebody. That there's actually somebody there. So this understanding of non-self is still on the level of perception? Yes, of course. <laughs> So I think like Cicely's question was somewhat coming from that place in terms of my understanding also of um, that every time um, mind can't grab onto something, it's closer to its true nature. Or I don't know how some of the words uh, I don't know some of the words, but every time the mind is not grasping, it's closer to resting in its natural state. Or being non-deluded. So, so I'm curious what uh, teaching is giving, how that. Well, the Buddha said that his teaching is a graduated teaching, and he compared it to the ocean. That if you wade into the ocean from the beach you only get your feet wet first. As you go in further, you get wet to the knees, 
then up to the waist and finally up to the shoulders and then you may actually submerge yourself in the water and this is the way the teaching works and this is what this inside path is all about it's a gradual graduated teaching and the Zen people uh, this much I do know about their teaching have a different idea and that arose because of the fact that in the Theravada tradition it was very very common to do only study and philosophize about everything but do no practice at all and so they got very uh, tired of that and the Japanese, Chinese and Japanese traditions thought well this is ridiculous they're all talking about it but doing nothing so we're just going to do and uh, we are going to we're going to do it to the point where the mind has no way out we're going to push the mind into a corner where it has absolutely no way out and it's just got to burst wide open and leave all its concepts now this is not a graduated teaching this is a way of really forcing the mind into that corner and making it actually do uh, let go of all concepts um, it's fine so it's in other not words, what we there's, there's basic agreement, except the paths are different. Yes, well, the, 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 the method, well, the basic agreement is that there's nothing else to be uh, done except attain Nibbana. That's the basic agreement. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's a basic agreement. <laughs> it's very basic, isn't it? It is very basic. Yeah. <laughs> Well, no, I don't think that uh, they quite put it in those words. Not in those words, but ultimately it's nirvana. But uh, we, have, uh, we have different methods. And the Buddha's instruction in the Pali Canon is study and practice. And it has been a feature of Theravadan tradition for a long, long time that study took uh, a pride of place. And that was what got the uh, Zen tradition started in only practice. But it is now in the West, which may be interesting, um, in many Zen centers, an accepted fact that they must study the Theravadan teaching, that it just isn't enough to just sit, because most people haven't got a clue why they're sitting. So there are actually in the West, I don't know what goes on in Japan, I have no contact at all, but I do have contact with several Zen teachers in the West, particularly one in England and one in Austria, and both of them are teaching, doing study, which they have in the past totally neglected at times, and sometimes just used some of the suttas of their own Zen patriarchs, which are also usually paradox and difficult to understand so now that they are using this more so we are uh, we are totally committed to a graduated teaching which gives rise to insight after insight which culminates in hopefully total insight could uh, this graduated path take only one lifetime oh yes yes certainly there's no reason why it shouldn't, except the uh, karmic obstructions.
Well, and then there are those that hear it and still don't do anything about it. <laughs> okay, anything else? Yes, that's fine. Well, if you were to liken evil to a tree, mm-hmm. all of the false conceptions of evil to a tree, so that all of the branches of the tree were various and sundry false conceptions about the nature of reality, then I would have thought that an insight would be snipping off a branch. And gradually you snip off branches and you finally chop the whole thing down. Then you become a vegetable. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't work that way. You've got nothing. (laughs) The insight means that you see this relative reality in a total different way. In other words, it's not... Well, I don't, I can't quite use that analogy so well. Uh, you're using the ego as the tree. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, well, no, I can't use that so well. Um, let's say the ego is something that we conceive of as a reality, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And it permeates everything we think, feel, do, react to. It completely permeates it all because there's no way out of it as long as we have that conception of ourselves of this ego thing that's in there but as we gain insight gradually little by little that concept of ego becomes reduced it becomes less and less and it is instead what is seen is a movement of phenomena phenomena Phenomena. Yes. (laughs) That's all that's seen. And as you see this movement that is happening within and without, it doesn't mean that you see nothing. You see a movement of phenomena. So cutting down the tree and having nothing isn't going to do the work for you. You've got to know what is happening. Absolute reality is not nothing. It's just different from relative reality. But you know, uh, that's tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've been getting on with it. We've got as far as our gradual insights, graduated insights. We've got as far as uh, seeing everything dissolving in front of our eyes. You see, the, the, the dissolving is of something you know. Whereas now, when we sit here, nothing is dissolving. It all looks extremely solid, doesn't it? Yes. Well, <laughs> then you'd have to be very, very attentive to the dissolving. But as soon as it, it looks all solid, it's one way of looking. It's all dissolving is another way of looking. You can't just say, I let go of all the solid and what you have. You've got to have something instead. You have things as they are. Yeah, as they are, dissolving. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You've got to know that. But that's not a No, but it's a knowing, knowledge and vision. 
You've got to have knowledge and vision. So isn't the closer you get to the realization of things as simply as they are, exactly. you're talking sequentially of consciousness about that? Yes, but instead you have knowledge and vision instead of concepts. Yes, well, I'm, I'm not disputing that. So you um, can't I'm cut down the tree. Uh, I'm not sure what you call it. Panya in, in Pali. Prasha, wisdom. Yes, yes. Instead of having a concept, you've got, yes, in, well, wisdom, yes. yes. But that doesn't mean you've cut down the tree and you've got nothing. You've cut down concepts. Instead, you get something else. But isn't the process of insight the cutting down of concepts? Yeah, but you get wisdom instead. You want to get nothing. (laughs) 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 Yes, you want to cut down the tree and get rid of it and be be finished with it. That doesn't work. Hmm? Well, that isn't necessarily what I'm trying to do. Okay, then I have misunderstood you. Well, I'll come back to some more language. Okay. <laughs> okay, but we can maybe we can say that instead of concepts we get wisdom, huh? But then <laughs> 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 yes. But <laughs> yes, but <laughs> then it wouldn't be stored as a concept. It would become part. Of maybe you understand something different about a concept than what I understand yes. about a concept. I mean, everything that, uh, that we actually, every word is a concept. Everything that is arising is a concept. Because and unless it is, has the total absolute wisdom in it, then it's no longer a concept. I'm sorry, I, 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 can't, I can't make use of that. It doesn't mean anything to me. But I can tell the difference between a concept and wisdom. A concept is ego, wisdom is non-ego. If you let go of ego, you've got to have non-ego. Is that wisdom uh, No. No. Once you've gained insight into anything, that remains with you. And if you have a car accident and lose your memory, I presume it, you lose that too. I have no idea. But as long as wow. we are normal, <laughs> but as long as we are what we call normal, and Buddha always talked about normality as, as we are. He did not address himself to people whose minds were impaired. He said that we have to be grateful for having our mind and body in all its aspects in order. He never, in all the Pali canon, addressed himself to anyone whose mind was impaired. It's difficult enough to understand it with a mind that's not impaired. Never mind a mind that can't, that hasn't got it all together. That is impossible. So there is a, and this has often given rise to a feeling of, oh, this is um, elitist. But it is so difficult to understand even what we consider normal mind. So normal mind retains that insight far better, or any insight it gains, far better than anything else it has ever retained 
because it makes an enormous impact if it is an experience. It is an experience. It's not just something you hear, you learn, you, you uh, understand, you try to get a hang of, uh, the hang of it. It's not like that at all. It has to be the experience. And because it is the understood experience, it makes an enormous impact. And it is never lost. It can't be lost. As long as this mind is still in existence, it does not get lost. That's why the progression to Nibbana is possible. Otherwise, it wouldn't be possible. If we keep on losing our insights, we've got to start all over again every day. What's the use of 20 years of practice then? Or 50 years of practice? Useless, wouldn't it? So we retain the insights. The calm, the uh, jhanas are easily lost if not practiced. No, no, no way of hanging on to them. Well, you heard several stories about that already. But it doesn't have to be so long, even short time, you're losing. What about Bayer's story, which is what is a very, inside the painting very much, and he had very short time, and mm. he said, uh, cow, there is a cow, and when you see something, it's sad only. Mm. Mm. Something like that. Mm. Similar. <laughs> that, that is it, don't go further. Yeah. It is sad, remember that. I, I had a, a, a great deal of um, um, cont well, cont contrary feeling when I mentioned in a course in Germany, uh, more or less accidentally, I don't even remember why, it, why I mentioned it, that in order to follow this path, you've got to have uh, uh, physical energy. And uh, the Buddha also said you have to have a good digestion. And one of the uh, uh, one of the preconditions is also uh, reasonable health. And there was a great deal of and a mental mental health, of course. I mean, mental normality. Um, and there was a great deal of, of controversy why one shouldn't uh, teach this to retarded people and that type of thing. Well, it doesn't make sense. I mean, there's no way to discuss it even. I mean, we've got enough trouble understanding the whole thing, haven't we? So what, ab what about people that, that have less ability than we have? The Buddha has said one of the preconditions is a good digestion. <laughs> <laughs> but like this, I want to say, I shouldn't say, I don't know, I'm comparing religion, Christianity, even though a person, uh, that is very, like Mother Teresa, the person is absolutely gone, mentally, physically, and definitely mentally, the grace is on him, at least he thinks. Mm. Whatever according to her conviction, mm. uh, for even the feeble, feeble-minded, feeble bodies uh, dying, uh, absolutely, these are not the conditions for saving the soul of a person. It's not so that they have to be absolutely fit and strong and understanding and years of practice. No, what Mother Teresa is doing is not exactly uh, what we're trying to do. She's trying to do social service with the vengeance, and she does it extremely well. And she helps the poor and, re and uh, rejected people, but uh, she's not trying to get them to enlightenment. <laughs> she's helping them. And uh, the help she's extending to them is uh, wonderful and uh, a great, great um, uh, 
a great, uh, wonderful aspect of the Christian religion, which is often not showing itself in its best light. But that is a very good, wonderful aspect of it. But it certainly has nothing to do with what we're doing. <laughs> not even, not even similar. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I think he started first. <laughs> well, it's very difficult to sit here uh, many hours with your stomach is hurting you. <laughs> because you need to meditate for quite a uh, long while in order to gain real insight and real calm. And if your stomach is, uh, you know, giving you a lot of trouble, it's very difficult. Yes. Very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. I, I was going to say that um, it seems that the Buddhist teachings would be helpful to anyone of any, any condition of mind or body. But when we're talking about achieving enlightenment, then those things are needed. But in terms of one's karmic condition improving, for instance, I think of those people who, uh, because they meet Mother Teresa, die with a sense of being loved, that then their rebirth would be better. Yes, could easily be. So in that sense, Buddhist mm. teachings, I mean, because you meet, I couldn't imagine that you would turn people no, no, it's not that. He didn't. He didn't say that that you turn anybody away. Uh, what he said that in order to in order to have the energy, you know, energy is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, for that, you need also this bodily disposition. And someone who has a good bodily disposition certainly has it easier. There's no question about it. Now, eventually, when you can get your concentration together, you can overcome the bodily uh, discomforts and bodily difficulties. But first, you've got to get your concentration together. And, you know, um, the teachings of the Buddha are not what you impart to people who have no physical or mental abilities. The teachings of the Buddha, if they're imbued within you, is something that you extend to them, like she, Mother Teresa, is doing with love, with metta. But she cannot impart anything to these people. So what we're talking about, or at least what I'm talking about, is imparting the teaching to people. And it's impossible to impart them to people who do not have those two aspects of mind and matter in at least the condition that we are having. And we find it difficult enough now. So to extend that which we have learned towards them, towards those that have less uh, possibilities than we have, that of course, yes. That would be very useful. And that would be our compassion. Hmm. Well, you want to put this on the tape or what? Or have you stopped taping? No, taping. You're taping. <laughs> no, I was so confused about the difference between um, matter and mind. Matter is, is um, body. Mm-hmm. The five sounds, right? Mm-hmm. 
one skanda. It's only one of them, right? And the rest, the rest of them is mine. The body, the rest of them is mine. So when you talk about characteristics of the mind or consciousness, that's all, all four of the other kinds. But you said the only two characteristics are they lose contact and they have movement. Don't they have the three, the three characteristics of existence? Yes, certainly. Oh. Movement is here impermanent. And because of impermanence, they've got dukkha. And because they've got dukkha and impermanence, they don't belong to anybody. Movement is impermanence, and movement is irritation, and therefore dukkha. First, you've got to notice something. First, you've got to notice something that's going on in there. The first step is movement. No, when in the in the Pali uh, language, mind is chitta, and it contains uh, four aspects: vedana, sanya, sankara, and vinyana. Vedana is feeling, sanya is perception, sankara is the thought process or the volition can be translated as either, and the vinyana is the sense consciousness. So when you have your attention on the breath, what you're using are the sankaras. And the aspect of the sankara you're using is mindfulness. Well, if you want to know it that exactly, that's the way it is. But you could also see that you're putting your mind on the breath. It's just as correct. But mind does have these four aspects, yes. No. It's a matter of saying that you're putting your mind on the breath. In English, you can say that. You can say you're putting your mind on the breath. But if you want to know it in the in the in the version of the Pali, you have to say, "I'm putting the sankara on the breath, the sati, the sati which is part of sankara, the mindfulness which is part of the thought process." I don't see how that can help you. The only thing that can help you is actually do it, and then when you actually do it, all you know is the movement, and from that movement you will know that it is impermanent, and you will let, get to know the arising and ceasing. And from that you will also know what is actually happening. The, the, way, the reason I said mind was because I was delineating mind and matter. First we have to get apart the one from the other four, and then when you want to get a, 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 an aspect of the four, that is when I said later, the five khandas, I didn't mention them anymore because I thought everybody knew them. But later on I said you have to find in the five khandas that was the fourth aspect of the insight. The five khandas have to be found to be in, impermanent and move, uh, not, not solid, uh, not owned. But first you have to get mind and matter apart. So that was the first aspect. And that is mind is that which watches the breath which is matter. So that was the first instance. You've got to start somewhere. That's where you start with the insight. Once you've got past that one, then you can go to the five kinds. That comes later. Oh, no. 
goodness no, how did you hear that? Actually, I thought that was an invocation on yeah. Well, let's leave Gwenka in India, in Bombay, where he belongs, okay? We're in Canada right now. <laughs> okay, leave him there, leave him in Bombay. <laughs> oh, it is, certainly, coexisting, but it's not the same. The first step of insight tells you that mind and matter are not the same that there are two things which are dependent upon each other but they certainly have entirely different characteristics in their manner of manifestation one is like this that we can see and the other one is a totally different manifestation but in essence they have the same absolute characteristics but you have to di differentiate first of all those two you've got to get those two apart No, most people don't distinguish at all. Most people think this is me and look after their bodies extremely well and take their minds for granted. Very few people are able to distinguish, only when you start practicing. Or some people may be very wise, I don't know, I haven't met them, but uh, they may be doing it without practice, but ordinarily it has to be practiced. Most people say, this is me, and they look after this thing extremely well, spend all the money and energy on this. So first they have to delineate this, you have to find out that there are two. And then as you find out that there are two, then you keep on going. Well, Absolutely. You never think of them as one heap again. Goodness. Can I ask one question? Oh, yes. <laughs> um, I don't see how it's possible to distinguish mind from matter. Have you tried? Well, if I'm following my breath. Well, when I'm hearing a sound, I find the outside and inside. Huh? Outside, inside. Sorry, I don't follow you. What's outside and inside? Well, well, if, if you really get into sound, yeah. and you really don't distinguish your ear separate from the sound. The ear? You mean the, the, you uh, the, uh, uh, the hearing quality? You Well, uh, well, are you talking about using sound as a meditation subject, or are you talking about just hearing somebody talk? I don't think there's any difference. Oh, yes. I think what I'm trying to point out is that there's no, there's no difference between the mind and the matter. In fact, you, it wouldn't even be appropriate to talk about mind or matter in that situation, because the mind or, or the, the hearing is not separate from the sound. 
well, wait a minute, what do you mean by hearing is not separate from sound? Uh, which one is mind and which one is matter? Well, when, when, when you're fully in the experience of... Yeah, uh, yeah. Which one, is, which one is mind and which one is matter? That's the question. Okay. Uh, you'd want to know which one's mind and which one is matter, apparently. Well, when you're in that situation fully. What do you mean when you're in... You're, you're having sound right now. Are you in it? I'm in it to the extent I'm not uh, conceptualizing on over. Okay, so you're so. in it. You're having sound and you're in it. Mm -hmm. Okay, the mind is the part that understands the sound. The ear only hears it. The mind understands it. But is, is that understanding separate from it? I mean, you're yes. You have to start, in order to get rid of the feeling of compactness and solidity, it is necessary to take this compact unit apart. That is a way of insight. Well, I'm wondering if that's really the case, or if that's really possible, because I don't... Well, then I should try it. Well, I have been trying, and like, you know, mm. it's the experience of that, that form you've been hearing in the evening occasionally. Sometimes you could have sort of ideas about it, mm -hmm. and then sometimes you could actually hear the sound, or mm -hmm. integrate the sound with nothing else happening. Mm. Right. When it's only sound, it's only a sense contact, okay? And then it is only that which has hit here on the ear. But the minute you say it's a horn, it's the mind working. The ear can't say it's a horn. It's got to be the mind. The idea appears to be that one loses one artificial concept of preconceptions about the world, mm -hmm. which would be mind in that instant, instant causing the horn or making a storyline out of it. Well, there's nothing wrong with calling it a horn, you know. And then when you actually get to what's happening and really attain insight into the situation, then you just can't differentiate between sound and hearing and what's making it. In fact, it would be almost somewhat inappropriate to... If you can't differentiate, you're losing your, your ability to, to discriminate. It would be dreadful. Well, I think discriminating in this way would be uh, seeing a situation fully. No, it's a misconception. Right. You're having misconceptions. Look, uh, I'll try and explain in a different way. There are two levels of realization, or two levels of being. One is relative and one is absolute. On the relative level, there's absolutely nothing wrong with saying this is a horn. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. And you have to know that the mind is saying this. But on the ultimate level, you would just have the experience itself. But there wouldn't be nothing there. No, not at all. An arahant would also know that this is a horn. If he didn't, he'd be becoming stupid, wouldn't he? That's true, but to have the ultimate experience, not to go through the experience of it, 
No, you see, the ultimate experience is the Nibbani. No, not that. That you don't know that this is a whole has nothing to do with, abs- with, with Nibbana. If you don't know that this is a horn, it's got something to do with paying no attention or being on sound only. If you're on sound only, then you hear only sound. That's fine. Then your mind has at that moment used only the complete mindfulness on sound. That's quiet. Even sound, to know that you're hearing sound, you need the mind. If there are ears and no mind, you wouldn't know you're hearing sound. <laughs>